University of Texas Press presents From a Taller Tower, The Rise of the American Mass Shooter by veteran journalist Seamus McGraw. There is no silence deeper than the silence between gunshots. From a Taller Tower faces the depths of that silence in the wake of the mass shootings plaguing the United States. Available now at utexaspress.com and wherever books are sold. Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the web editor. Though Harper's Magazine is best known for its writing, the fine art and illustrations that run in its pages have always been more than complementary to the words. You can say that's all just some barely concealed promo copy, but there aren't many other publications that have published new work by Diego Rivera, Kara Walker and Andy Warhol before and after he got famous. Part of the March issue is dedicated to selections from the photographer Richard Rothman's Town of Sea, a monograph of black and white pictures taken over a decade in an unnamed city located in Colorado's Front Range. As Lyle Rexer notes in his introduction to the portfolio, Rothman's work seeks out the American character that, quote, obvious yet elusive thing. I spoke with Rothman and Rexer about the process of creating the book, its narrative thrust, and how we can look at and compose photographs in a world awash in images. Richard, I'll, I'll start with you. I read that you were a painter before discovering the work of Richard Avedon and switching to photography. How much does your background in painting influence the ways in which you choose to portray the world photographically? First, I should probably qualify that I, I never really was a painter. Um, I fell in love with drawing when I was six years old. And that was my passion straight through art school. And uh, I was very happy my freshman year in art school because drawing was a major and I excelled at it. And the next year rolled around and there were no longer any drawing classes, let alone a drawing major. And far more disappointingly, there wasn't anybody teaching painting that knew how to paint anymore. Uh, and no one was being encouraged to paint. Everyone in the painting department was encouraged to be doing some kind of neo-conceptual runaround painting. Uh, and that did not interest me. Um, and so I was, I was lost for a while. And then I stumbled on this, this exhibition of Richard Avedon's photographs of his father at MoMA. And I was really knocked out by the show. I was, I was very moved. And when I left that show, I knew that, you know, this was the medium that I wanted to move into. Uh, at that point, I was at the end of my undergraduate uh, work. And, um, I decided to come to New York. I did not want to go to grad school for photography because my experience with undergrad school, which had ruined painting for me, was uh, a warning sign. I didn't want to risk the chance that that would happen with photography. I've always been a kind of independent learner. Um, you know, I had I went to a progressive high school and I basically had a completely independent study program, which is very suitable for an artist. And um, so I just jumped in. I know. Lyle, how would you connect? Do you feel like there's a connection between Avedon's work and Richard's work? Yeah, very, very much so. Uh, and it's not, it's not so much anything that's directly stylistic, uh, but just in listening to Richard uh, just talk about drawing and, and his fascination with drawing. It, it's quite clear that you know, graphically speaking, there's a very close relationship between black and white photography and drawing. Mm. Historically, that was, in a way, that was one of the ways that people early on were able to understand photography as a form of drawing. Um, but, but the other thing that really strikes me, as I'm looking at the pictures from Town of Sea again, thinking about, thinking about Avedon, in, in, with both with both photographers, with, with the work that, that Richard was talking about, especially that remarkable series of pictures that Avedon made of his father, 
Um, not only there is there is there this beautiful kind of graphic quality to those, almost as if I handed and etched the pictures, but there's also um, certainly with the town of C, and this is where I think there is a connection that's fascinating to me. There is a kind of um, how can I put it? There's a kind of stillness or a, a, a constructed quality, a slow characteristic that that makes the makes the pictures seem as if they were constructed, as if they were drawn. And it's that kind of feeling, that kind of stillness or that kind of precision that I think really links these pictures with what, what Richard was talking about in, in, in terms of that, that love of drawing. And it's not something I've had a chance to think enough about because I think our discussions of photography have moved so far away from its origins that we've, we've tended to forget certain things. And, that, and I think most importantly is this connection between photography and drawing. So I think I should respond first by saying I've probably thrown you all a little bit of, of curveball. I know that I talked <laughs> about Avedon in, um, in the interview insert in my book Redwood Saw because I was asked the same question you know what brought you into photography from painting and that is the answer but uh, Avedon did not go on to be a primary influence photographically um, you know I wasn't that I wasn't interested in the fashion work although he's obviously you know a, a fantastic fashion photographer but that's not the language that I work with um, so I moved on from there, but I think your, your comments were perceptive, Lyle, and there is something there. You know, for me, painting and drawing really came about in a way that had almost nothing to do with contemporary art. Um, I grew up in a, in a household that was not visually literate. I, I think it was because my grandfather was an Orthodox rabbi, images were not a big thing, it was all about the word. Um, my parents were not at all engaged with visual art, although they were literate. Um, so I just fell in love with images as a kid. Um, pictures are, are what I really, it's in my blood, it's in my veins. And I'm interested in all kinds of picture making, drawing, painting, photographs. Um, so I just gravitated toward the images that engaged me. And uh, I had this facility, this you know, natural facility for drawing. And it was one step at a time. I wanted to draw like Michelangelo, as crazy as that sounds. And uh, I graduated high school early. I was in college when I was 16. And that was, that was my goal. And then suddenly, I discovered art history mm -hmm. and um, found out that the world wasn't looking for another Renaissance artist or draftsman. <laughs> Um, so I had to do a lot of recalculating. Mm -hmm. And you choose to shoot in black and white and you use a camera that creates a four inch by five inch image, which is l large and it has a very, you know, a very high resolution. So you're getting tons and tons and tons of detail in every image. But the, fo the photographs, you're not you're not printing them large, you know, you, on the, you know, the. The question of camera and process is important in that shooting film in this format limits and disciplines it. You can't shoot a hundred versions of the same image unless you uh, are secretly a millionaire. I don't know. Um, and it really slows the process down. So what is the impact of choosing this particular format in black and white? And why do you choose to do it that way? I think several reasons. You know, the, the large format camera really forces you to slow down and you have to learn how to construct an image or you're not going to want to stay with that format um, because it's so laborious and it's so time consuming and um, endless failures uh, aside from the money factor are just incredibly time consuming. So if you don't really get good at being able to do the thing of walking into a space, whatever space that is, and being able to see the frame in your mind and understanding what lens you're working with and what's going to appear on that ground glass and if it's going to work or not going to work, you're not gonna be staying in with that medium for very long. And it takes everyone a long time to become really uh, successful with that camera. But once you're there, you find out that you're taking a fraction of the pictures that you used to have to take 
to get a good one with a roll film camera. In fact, I can tell you because I've kept track of my negatives over many years that my shooting ratio with the roll film was about one to a hundred of you know first quality pictures, and with the large format, it's about one to ten, mm. um, which is you know I'm very happy with one to ten. That's good. Um, the other reason, Violet, is that it's just um, the quality is beautiful for printing, and I am a photographer that really cares about prints uh, very much, and. Um, it's a beautiful way of working. It forces you, especially in the realm of portraiture, to have an intimate encounter with someone that takes some time. And uh, that's a kind of a dialogue between the photographer and the sitter. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm thinking about, uh, I, I'm paraphrasing this and I probably don't have the quote right, but there was something that the photographer, Bill Brandt said that was really, really wonderful. And he said, what we're after something that's not in a hurry and it's it's so true of these pictures uh, you you don't get these pictures by moving through quickly by moving through the town quickly by spending just a short period of time and you don't get them by spending a short period of time during the photo session itself uh, and i think that really really comes through thanks thanks i'm glad to hear that and i mean you know Lyle just alluded to this, but you um, you stayed in this town for, you know, and you returned there many times over a period of years and you made a real commitment to this particular town. Can you you talk about the reason why you chose that? I mean, obviously, you're 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 saying that your process is a lot slower and uh, methodical, let's say. Right. Um, so. I actually began two projects the same year in 2004. Uh, one was my first book, which was about a small town in Northern California, Crescent City, that was adjacent to a redwood, a redwood forest and the Pacific coast. And the other is this book in Colorado. All of this came about because I married a woman who lived out West and she was a New Yorker. Um, she had moved to New York, but we used to go back and visit her family who lived in this small town in Colorado. Hmm. And I went there for many years before I thought about shooting, not only there or out West. Um, to me, in the beginning, the West was a place that was alien to me as a photographer, not because I didn't love all the Western photographs that I was familiar with, but it was actually because I really did love them. And I thought they were so great. I had nothing to offer. I had no, you know, I was a tourist essentially. Mm -hmm. But after a number of years, you know, you wake up one morning and you no longer feel like a tourist. Mm -hmm. And you realize maybe that you have something to say about the place. And things just kind of began to fall in place for me uh, in terms of being able to envision an approach that would be my own and that would take me somewhere that wasn't just repeating the territory that I was already very familiar with. What did you know from being there? What, what was that, that revelation? I mean, what was it that, that started to speak to you about the place and said, you know this yeah. and you need to make these pictures because other people need to know this? Well, first of all, my, my attraction to the West was, was really strong, I think, because I came there from, you know, walking the sidewalks of New York and seeing nothing but urban life for, for decades. And I was thirsty. I think I had a hunger for this experience that had to do with open space and, and quality of light that you find out West. Um, and so it was fascinating to me. And I was just on an experiential level, I wanted to get more of it. So the impulse was there. Um, and intellectually, I'd become very interested in certain kinds of readings about the environment, about um, forests in particular, which was what led me to Redwood Saw and an old growth forest to photograph. Um, so those issues were at play. Um, but what really clicked for me and made me think that I could do something there was I began to conceive of, a, of narrative projects. At the time, I didn't even have that word. 
I mean, in 2004, I wasn't using that language, um, but I was seeing my way through to a way of constructing a book of images that was more story-like. Um, and I, I knew that there was something fresh about it and something exciting about it to me as a photographer that um, made me want to commit the amount of time I did to these projects. One of the things I love about this set of pictures, uh, and I think is very, very important, because I, I grew up in the Midwest, but I'm also a New Yorker too. I've been here for a long time. And the one thing, the, the, obviously the obvious thing that strikes you is the kind of this, the connection between kind of how people are, how they appear and the physical spaces they create around themselves. And then the broader sense of space that, that the West or in this particular case, the front range sort of gives people, uh, and one of the pictures that I, I keep coming back to, and it's probably in, in many ways, the least uh, striking of the pictures in the portfolio, but one that resonates with me, is a picture that, that it's kind of like an establishing shot of the town. And it's not the whole town itself, it's just sort of the periphery of it. And you're, you're kind of out there, and there's a lot of small buildings that kind of dot the landscape. There's a road in the center, and it, in a way, there's a way in which the, the town, it just sort of diffuses into the landscape. And I was really struck by that. I thought it was very important to think about that mm -hmm. in terms of the rest of the set of pictures uh, in, in this group. Yes. Yeah, I think, um, you know, that picture is near the beginning. Um, there's something cinematic about the way I play with moving in and out of space in that book. I think, and I think it's from, you know, years and years of unconsciously absorbing cinema and the way the camera introduces you to a place and then moves you around into more intimate circumstances. And that works for me. And I think I just employed a little bit of that in the book. It feels very much like that. And I have to say, you know, if you, if we go back to the, that tradition of landscape photography that I think in a way this work references, and I'm thinking primarily of the 60s and 70s in American photography, um, so much of that was steeped in a kind of cinema, cinematographic uh, sense of things. Um, and you, you, we can think of movies like Easy Rider, for example, which was, which was a enormously, I think, enormously important um, kind of homage to the wide open spaces. But so many photographers who kind of absorbed that same sense, that cinematic sense of the West, because many of them had grew up watching Westerns when they were kids as well. Uh, it, I, I find that absolutely true of, of, of the town of C. It's almost like we, we kind of move in, we can feel the camera moving in, and then we're there. Um, but I, I did want to ask Richard very much, I, I'd like, I wonder if you talk about uh, the people you met and the people you photographed, because those are really remarkable portraits. And can you talk a little bit about kind of what your relationship was like with those people and how did that evolve? Yeah, um, you know, it's a town of 15,000 people, which is a small town. And, um, and my wife's family had lived there forever. In fact, her great, great grandparents were amongst the settlers of that town. They were, you know, they were uh, pioneers. Um, came over on Castoga wagons and they helped found the town and it's been small for a very long time and for a lot of interesting reasons there are towns next to it which are far more developed and uh, far more economically successful and they're they're less interesting to me they're you know victims of the typical uh, American sprawl suburban you know difficult issues that we're all familiar with this town, because it's economically um, on the edge, it was, there was a moment there where there was uh, oil, a little oil boom. It started out as a mining town and it's been a prison town mm. for a very long time. So the econ that's the number one employer in the town. And that marks the town with a certain kind of character. 
um, because you have you know the majority of people who live there working in the prison system in one in one form or another, and that's um, you know that's very uh, soul sucking work for a lot of people. that's that's really important to know absolutely. And you also have a lot of people there who have been in and out of the prison system and families that come to stay there because it's an economically depressed town. Um, you know, it's an inexpensive place to live. So uh, there are a lot of, uh, there's a lot of troubled people in that town um, as, there, as there is almost anywhere. But um, uh, so I was lucky enough to be able to have the opportunity to meet and to get to, to photograph people from a lot, of, a lot of different walks of life. And I wanted to try and include as much as I could um, in the book as possible in terms of wanting to get an overview of, of life in the town. Um, so I made sure that I had photographed the wealthiest person in the town and I photographed homeless people in the town. And I tried to photograph as much in between as I could um, to create a portrait of a town. You know, a small town, I mean, is a, it's a big thing to try and represent uh, in a book-sized picture. So that involves a lot, of, a lot of editing, a lot of choosing, a lot of, uh, a lot of decisions that have to be made in order to arrive at a representation of a place that, that is not only that not only has fidelity to the town itself, but more importantly, I guess, to my own subjective understanding of what life in that town is about. Yeah, I mean, you were talking about narrative earlier, um, and how do you how do you envision narrative working within a let's say a single photograph versus you know a series of you know curated selected photographs. When you're making a narrative body of work, there has to be a reason that each picture comes after the picture before it, and each picture before it, the pictures before that, and so on and so forth. Um, so even though it's not a narrative in the sense of a, a story with a beginning, a middle, and an end, um, it is a story, and there's a logic to the editing that's very tight. In fact, I spent three years editing this book. Um, it usually doesn't take me that long. The first book I did was a year of editing, but I had to change the structure of this book four times to actually get it right. Um, because I went in with an idea that just didn't hold up when, when I sat down to do the editing. You know, when I'm working and I'm shooting, I don't, I don't try and edit. I try and leave it open. Um, so that I can go, I can digress as much as I want. I can discover new themes, new sub themes, and let the work breathe, um, you know, just going one step at a time. And then you're developing ideas that are, are working ideas in terms of a structural approach. But when you actually sit down to sequence the pictures, what I found was my idea didn't work, even though it was a beautiful idea, it just didn't work with the pictures. So can you, um, can you tell us what that idea was that didn't yes. work? I'm really intrigued. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, it's going to take a little bit of time. It's a little crazy and eccentric, but you know, actually literature is one of my biggest influencers. Um, you know, I think I, I became very unhappy with, um, the dialogue in the visual art world a long time ago. Um, I love literature. Uh, my, my former wife um, was a writer and uh, a literary critic and editor at The New Yorker. Um, it's always been a big part of my life. Um, and I had read uh, Thomas Mann's Wooden Books, which is a, a story of, um, a multi-generational story about a family in Germany that uh, goes through decline. And there were certain aspects of 
that family situation that um, I saw reflected in my wife's family situation. And so my original idea was I wanted to take everything I had done in my first book, Red with Saul, which was another portrait of a small town and the environment surrounding that town. Um, and I wanted to make it more complex. So my original idea was I was going to start from the center um, with the family, all the generations of the family is a large family. And then I was going to slowly build out into the town and then into the surrounding areas of the town. I mean, the town is of uh, not only of interest to me, um, but the landscape around the town was just as important. It's, uh, it's largely undeveloped, it's magnificent. The light's incredible, it's you know high altitude southwest desert land uh, with lots of microclimates around it. It's really a, an exceptionally beautiful place, especially if you love mountains and rivers, which I do. Um, and so I thought I would move out that way. What ended up happening was unfortunately my wife and I divorced during the making of the book. We're still very good friends, fortunately, but um, the family didn't want to be represented in the book. Um, so I had to rethink that idea. My next idea was that the book was going to have a, a chapter structure. And the chapter structure was going to model the, uh, the prologue to the book now. So Lyle, you remember that the book starts with uh, pictures and then brief titles for several pages. Those right. brief titles like the river, uh, the plates, which refers to the tectonic plates, under pale shadows, which refers to the mountain alpine light. Um, they're all elemental themes before you move into the town. Originally, I was going to structure the book like that in chapters um, because I was trying to play around with how close I could get to the novel form, mm -hmm. uh, a photographic narrative book. Um, that didn't work. When I just sat down to um, sequence the pictures, it didn't feel right. So I had to throw that out the window and on it went. And the That's reason it's so long is because you have, you know, when you're, when you're looking at, I had thousands of pictures. Um, I could probably make three books from all the shooting I did out there. But um, when you're sequencing, you know, you can only look at it for so long before you stop seeing it. So I'd have to put it aside for months at a time and then come back to it again, um, which is why it took three years. Yeah. Oh, and I, and I, I guess sort of the, the issue that we kind of keep dancing around and, and uh, I suppose this is a question for both of you is that we're in an era where we're just, oversaturated with images. Everyone has a camera with them, on them all the time. Um, people just haphazardly upload these images that probably they won't even look at again. Um, so how do you, I guess, how do you understand or approach art photography? Or does all this sort of visual noise have no consequence? Or do uh, we need photographers? Right. Since we right. got so That's many sort of, of them. Right. Yeah. Well, I have one advantage in that I'm not on social media, so I'm not bombarded by <laughs> Instagram every day and, and uh, the billions of images that people are cycling through. I don't know how they do it. You know, I put in a lot of time in the beginning of when I became a photographer um, in looking as, serious, as seriously as I could and looking at what I didn't like as well as what I really did like. And you find the work that matters to you. And you learn what you need to learn from the work that doesn't speak to you. And um, at the end of the day, there are really only, you know, a small number of artists that I care very deeply about. So I would say that my, you know, my current interests in photography are narrow and deep. Um, I'm not trying to keep up with everything that's going on out there. I don't think it's a good use of my time. I think things are kind of baked in now to a, to a certain extent in terms of 
the direction of the work and um, what it is I know I care about. Uh, to answer your question about photography, you know, I think, I think the basic simple answer is I try to make work about what interests me most and about what I'm most curious about and what I think is important and meaningful. Um, so this book is not only an attempt for me to try and reflect on the contemporary American moment, and that town felicitously turned into be more topical now, given the direction of the politics in the country than it was even then when I was working on it, uh, because I took the last picture in this book in 2016. Um, so, uh, that was part of the agenda, but I was also interested in, in trying to get at a lot of other aspects of life and being in the world that were important to me and of interest to me that I wanted to try and uh, blend and mix with that focus and attention on a particular American place. And you, you Lyle, because, you know, as someone who's responding and writing about art photography all the time how has it influenced or not influenced you well it, uh, you know <laughs> it's like everything there's there's a long answer and a short answer right <laughs> um I, I i remember i i'll just give you an anecdote um so some years ago when after after mary ellen mark passed away uh, i was asked to give a short statement um and and Mary Ellen Mark is someone whose work I'd never written about, although I had talked to her on a number of occasions and argued with her on a number of occasions. But it, what the fundamental question was is, is the one I sort of suggested earlier, which is what do we need photographers for? That is, we've already got so many of them. That is, to, just as you were saying, we've got, yeah, we've got social media, we've got everybody with a camera. And I have to say, because I teach so many young people, there are a lot of really, really good photographers out there. That is to say people with cameras. Let's not call them photographers. Mm -hmm. Let's say people with cameras. Mm -hmm. and, and much of the, the wonderful things that they do is sort of hidden in social media because it's just, it's a wash with images. Um, and, and I see kind of a distillation of that in my classes. And it's been enormously important for me to recognize that there are other ways of making pictures. And that we have to pay attention to that. On the other hand, when they asked me this question about Mary Ellen Mark, you know, I was forced to say something that sounds, even to me, so kind of conservative and retro that I was surprised to hear it come out of my mouth. But, but there's just no way around it. And that is that there are people who can make really good pictures and they can do it consistently. And they can do it because, first of all, and again, this is a really retro concept, they have a visual gift. That is, they understand within a frame how things mean, how things come together as, as, uh, as meaningful images. Doesn't mean that they understand what their images mean, or it doesn't mean that they can parse what they do, and give you chapter and verse, but they have a way of understanding what significant detail is. And more importantly, they also have a, um, a kind of conceptual framework for what they do. And again, it doesn't have to be completely articulated. It's not, you know, it's not a sort of theoretical position, but it is a kind of an awareness of sort of what pictures are all about, how they work, what people look at them for, and the kinds of things, as Richard was saying, what they're interested in. And that's not the sort of thing that, um, that you, you can't teach it, although I think you can practice it, uh, but you know it when you see it. And that's all I can say. At the same time, I should, I should add that we also know what, at this stage of the game, we know what the limits of images are. And we know that we know not to expect of pictures too much. And I think it's important to keep that in mind as well. Pictures do certain things, but they can't do everything. And it's why it's really nice to hear Richard talk about, about how they're sequenced and about what their relationship to textual material might be, to history, to economics, to all those other things that can help us, in a sense, enrich whatever response uh, to the images are. I mean, it's really important to keep, keep those as part of what we bring to pictures as an audience. Uh, because the photographers themselves 
if they're really good, will bring that to the pictures they make. Uh, they don't have to be experts, historians, ec economists, but that kind of awareness is surely not very distant from their own, uh, their own practice. Well, I have a couple of reactions to that, Lyle. You know, first, um, I think there will always be a place for someone to offer some deep and personal communication, regardless of the media. Um, I've taught for a long time too. I don't think I've had the same feeling you have about uh, the, um, the preponderance of talent out there. In my experience, it's been extremely rare. Um, I rarely come across those people that have that natural gift for composition that you were describing, that innate understanding of the frame, you know, that idea of, I mean, composition is putting unequal things together in the same place. Sure. And, and there are many things that go into making that work. And uh, some of that can be taught, but, you know, usually the people that end up being really um, significant photographers have some kind of an innate you know, uh, skill set that allows them to pick that up more quickly than other people do. Um, so, you know, I look around and I see a world awash in images, but I don't care about 99.9% .9 of them. Now, I, I used to think, well, this, this phenomenon isn't important because the amount of work that ends up being valued by a culture makes it to the next generation last is what we're talking about 0.0001%. Um, so we're really only, you know, historically we're gonna, we're going to be looking at a handful of people that the culture has decided are the most significant you know, artists. Um, and so in one sense, the game is the same as it always has been, you know, being the best is just as hard if there are a billion people as it is if there are a million people who are all striving for the same goal. But the more, the more this whole, you know, distribution of photography through the internet proceeds, uh, the more diffracted the attention span is for people who are looking at it. And I do wonder how that's going to affect the medium in the long run. Yeah, I think that's, a, that's obviously a reasonable concern, certainly for people who are thinking about art photography, mm -hmm. right? I mean, for the rest, like five seconds, that's all I need, or 10 mm -hmm. seconds. But, but it is unfortunate because, um, because there are things that, that need slowing down, even among that wash of images where everything seems to be, you know, uh, interchangeable. They often aren't. And the problem with our habits of viewing, and I think this is what Richard is really talking about, not just our habits of making, but our habits of viewing, is that we don't pay much attention to that. And the thing that's a little disturbing to me is it's not just younger people who seem to be kind of, um, Let's put it this way, who have truncated attention spans. I mean, that's right. <laughs> I, I can't tell you how many gallerists, how many, how many curators, how many people who traffic in images a lot have the same short attention span. And that's been quite disturbing to me. And I'm sure Richard has encountered that as well, where there are images, there are many images that require a little bit more time for them to reveal what it is that they're talking to you about. And it's not just, you know, all the people who are on social media who aren't taking the time. It's lots of people inside the profession who aren't mm -hmm. taking the time. And that's also quite, that's quite upsetting. And that doesn't have that much to do with what's happened in social media, but right. it's certainly, you might say, is encouraged by social media in, you know, in that regard. Yeah, agreed, agreed. Yeah, I mean, I think there's only so much you can insulate yourself because when I when I talk about, you know, sort of being oversaturated with images, it's not just what's going on online. It's, you know, uh, it's advertise advertisement and moving images where you didn't used to see them. Like if you go to buy a Coke from a 
from a like a machine you get there's a little image just dancing around and it's like it 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 even if you are not really paying attention to it that is impacting how you're taking in visual information how you're processing it or you you know or your willingness to really spend the time on something yeah the other thing is and richard you tell me what you think about this is I, I i actually think that one of the profound challenges we face is not the sheer number of images but the colonization of all our other ways of knowing about the world mm. and to me, that's an enormous problem. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, a, it's a truism that people don't read, but that's less concerning to me than the fact that it's also a truism that people re really don't gather information except visually. And if they can't see it, and this is regardless of what, what level of knowledge or sophistication they have about what they see, is that if they can't see it, they're not interested in it. And 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 it's colonized other kinds of senses like taste and smell and the sense of space and the body. You know, all those things have, in a sense, our, our experience of those things has been uh, to some degree flattened out. Uh, and there's no photographer who can help us that way. I, I don't think. Um, but it is true that it means that photographers are now, and especially serious ones like 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 Richard, are, are in a kind of uncomfortable position, it strikes me, because they, they're, they're part of this thing that's, in a sense, rolling over all the other modes of knowing that we have. Um, and I think the slowness of, of Richard's pictures, and, and I think of any really, really good photographer, and it could be somebody who's 19 years old as well, that's really one of the things that, that I think can, can help us can slow us down a little bit. So we have to pay attention to these other things that are happening to us when we look at pictures. You know, um, the world is a wonderful, terrible, tragic place. And life is a wonderful, terrible, tragic experience. And that's infinitely more interesting to me than what's happening on Instagram. <laughs> And it's richer. It's richer. It is. And so when I make work, I'm trying to put that forward in my consciousness. Um, I think we're past the point where there are going to be a lot of new formal revolutions that are going to, you know, explode our idea of what a photograph is. Um, you know, we know what it is. Yeah, everything, everything you just <laughs> talked about is what's happening now that's changing our relationship to photographs. Right. But when we're talking about fine art photography and we're talking about work that is at some point going to represent the best understanding, thinking, talent that a generation has to offer, I'm not sure that that's the, you know, that's where we want to have our focus directed. I would rather have it directed more at the experience of living and what it is that I find to be most compelling about that experience. Absolutely. I can't agree more. Yeah. I would say that, you know, we're, we're talking about this, um, this changing relationship or, or permanently changed. I mean, let's be like, I don't know how much you can walk any of the things that have happened in, in the past 20 years back. You probably ugh. save that for another podcast. But <laughs> I mean, how would you suggest someone to start to look at and think critically about photography or at, or at a single photograph, you know, sort of reclaim that um that curiosity, that sense of like, I'm going to give my time to this. So it's, you know, not so much like a thing, like things to look out for in that photograph, but you know, something, something how to approach work and begin to develop at your aesthetic muscles. Um, you know, I do that all the time actually, because I still teach. And as a self-taught photographer, I, I think I try and bring the way I approach that problem to my students, um, which is, 
you know, I encourage everyone, aside from thinking about all the things we've just talked in terms of really basing their work on what it is that matters to them most, um, I tell them, become familiar with the canon. Make sure you're aware of what's been done. Gravitate instinctively to the people that speak to you, to the photographs you care about, the photographers that matter to you, and then study their work and really get to know it and let it work on you. And then think about the ways that can connect with what it is you are interested in and where you want to go with your own photographic practice. For me, this kind of motivated what Richard is talking about, to, to some degree motivated the book that I just wrote about photography. And, and there's a couple of things. First, I would say, um, and when I think about Richard's background, what I, what I tell my students is, you know, you really have to expand your range of experience. You've got to bring more to the table. Um, and that's not just in terms of sort of the photographers that they see, because they actually, what I've found is, although it doesn't come out in formal ways, they do look, do a lot of looking and they are looking for things that they like, but what they're not so good at is moving into territory where they're really expanding their range of reference where, you know, they don't know much about science, for example, and they don't know much about history, for example, or economics or any of that stuff. Um, and among the best people that I've, you know, I've taught or, or known, they do care about stuff like that because that really does um, nourish the kinds of pictures they want to make. The other thing I would say is that, and maybe the most kind of advice for being an active let's say an active viewer is you just have to ask more questions. I mean, if what you really want to do is understand what you're seeing, then you've got to ask questions about it. And you have to ask questions about everything, not just the obvious stuff like, gee, what's it a picture of? But you have to ask questions about like, well, what, where did I find this picture? How did it come to me? What kind of picture is it? Who was it intended for? All those kinds of things that lie outside the frame, you got to ask all those questions. And then you have to start asking questions about all the stuff inside the frame, which is what the photographer is really controlled, right? Like what kind of lens or camera can you tell that they're using? You know, what, what format is this thing? Because those are all choices. And, and I, what I've tried to get everybody I teach more aware of is that choices make a difference. They are not they may not be fully conscious or they might be dictated by necessity, but they have an impact. And those are things that I think so much is taken for granted when we look at pictures. I mean, way too much is taken for granted. And that's, I mean, for me, that's the most important thing about any kind of, you might say, visual literacy curriculum is just to get people much more, I don't, not even critical, but just a little bit more actively engaged with what they're seeing because it pays off. It really pays off with the good photographers, the ones that Richard's talking about. Then it, the, the payback is huge. Uh, and it even pays off for ones that, for pictures that seem like they were accidental. Because at least you'll understand more about what you're looking at, even if, you, even if it's not any good. Um, you know, so that's what I'm thinking about. I'm, I'm pretty aware of the fact when I'm working that every time I'm, I'm making a picture, I'm making hundreds of choices. And over time, you come to realize that optimizing every one of those choices or as much as possible is what's going to make a better picture. Um, and yeah, there are thousands of little choices. Many of them are formal. Many of them are expressive. Many of them are emotional. Many of them have to do with um, an encounter and the way in which that encounter goes off. Um, but they all add up to a result that's either going to be better or worse. And so you work at that and you break them down to as many little pieces as you can um, to try and arrive, arrive at success. 
of course, what a success is, is what's really interesting. And that's where things get sticky. Um, but, you know, I think most of us who are, who are in this game, we have really highly developed intuition that comes from all the looking we've done and all the thinking we've done about what the medium is capable of. And we're making these decisions like that. Um, and that's important. You know, when you look at work, you're doing the same thing. I mean, you look at a picture, it's a gestalt. It washes over you in a moment. And then you have to step back and try and deconstruct how it worked on you. But you know, the impact of an image is, is immediate and powerful. And that's one of the interesting things about this medium. Yeah, I, I just, I can't help going back and listening to, to Richard. I can't help going back to, again to this Mary Ellen Mark situation. It, it, it came out of, or ironically, it, yeah. there was an earlier experience that we had where I was doing a talk with another photographer. And Mary Ellen Mark stood up. She was asking questions about the, um, about the discussion. And one of the things she said was, she said, you know, you keep talking about art. You know, and I was talking to a documentary photographer at the time. That was our conversation. She goes, you keep talking about art, you know, but don't call us artists. We're not artists. We are photographers. And, um, and I had been talking about exactly the things Richard was talking about, about the thousand choices that you make that are many of which are instinctive, a lot of which are based on your experience that you've had of shooting picture after picture. So you know how things look. You know what a, how a situation is going to set up. You know exactly what's going to happen in it. And you're waiting or you're, you're looking for that, that frame that's going to get exactly what you hope will, will, will be there. And what I was arguing was that, you know, those are what artists do. That's what they do. And, and, and just because you're a documentary photographer doesn't mean that you're not making artistic choices all the time. And it was really funny because the documentarians in the room just hated the idea that they were being lumped with like all those effete artists, you know, because uh, they're more serious. And they, they're more socially relevant. But, um, you know, I said, look, if it quacks like a duck and it walks like a duck and it flies like a duck, it's probably a duck. I'm, I'm familiar with that kind of resistance from a yeah. certain group of people. I. I've never, I've never had that feeling. I, I guess perhaps because I came from painting and I came, you know, I, I right. started out wanting to be an artist. And when I picked up the camera, it was to make art. And um, I do work in, in what I would call the extended documentary tradition because it allows me to engage with content that I care about. But um, when I say extended, documentary it's for a reason it's not photojournalism um, right and, and absolutely right and what's interesting to me is that all the photographers that I was just talking about all the ones in the room were actually people who had worked very well in, in, in an extended tradition I mean they were using nobody was using the four by five but they were working on those extended projects and they were very careful about the kinds of images they were making I, I think that they, you know, this resistance, I think, was just kind of not wanting to be put in a category that felt too feet or that felt too detached from reality. And, and I feel like, I think Richard's pictures make very clear, and as do the great documentary photograph photographers in, in the tradition, that, that it makes no sense to talk about some gap between those two worlds. They, it's photography, and and those choices and those decisions are are the same whether you make them in in a split second or whether you make them over a much more extended period of time. Agreed. I mean, um, you know, I think one of the most interesting things about doing this for me is the relationship you have between your own inner life and the world. And there's a wonderful way of combining those experiences with the medium. Uh, so, you know, for me, photography is very much like a call and response. You know, the, the call is, is the world and 
what you look on and what engages you and what you ultimately decide you want to photograph, respond to. The response hopefully is, is the poetry to which that gives rise in the way in which it reflects how you feel about the world. Uh, and, and this inner outer duality operates on many different levels in the medium. And to me, it's extremely exciting. And it's art. I mean, art is this, well, I'm not going to try and define it. It can, as we know, it can be anything that um, you want it to be. It's your choice, you know, it's, uh, uh, but for me, the, the beauty of it is trying to resolve these two forces. Um, resolve is probably not the correct word. Um, trying to negotiate these two different ways of encountering the world that are, you know, really essential ways of experiencing life. So when I'm photographing, you know, I want, I want my engagement with the world, but I also want the work to be about my own response to it. Um, and that's, to me, a very interesting and exciting problem, and it never gets easy. And I guess, what would you say to someone who isn't an aspiring artist, maybe their brain has just been melted or is currently melting because of uh, the things we've discussed? I mean, what would you say to them, you know, just to be a better viewer, a more active viewer? Because, hmm. I mean, I could see how a lot of it would apply, the same things would apply. But it's, I mean, again, and I mean, it's it's a cultural thing, right? The reason why the... The, the photographers didn't want to be called fine artists, right? Because it's, there's, this, there's this gap or this perceived gap. And yeah. it doesn't have to exist if we don't let it. You know, I have my own personal canon of, of work that I care deeply about that matters to me. And when I teach, I share that. And I try and, you know, share why it matters to me and why I think it's important and, and successful. And so I begin there, and uh, but everybody's going to pick up their own, you know, understanding of what that the medium entails along the way. Um, aside from that, you know, I think time plays a factor. You know, you there are enthusiasms we have that last a minute, and some enthusiasms last a week, and some will last forever. Um, and I think that's part of you know the beauty of becoming. A mature artist is that you've at least had the experience of understanding what kind of photography has stood the test of time for you. Uh, and very little does. Mm. Very little does. Why is that? I wonder. I think life is essentially about immediacy and we're all extremely preoccupied with what's right in front of us and what the very next step is going to be. Uh, and so being able to engage with the past in a way that feels deeply meaningful is a bit more of a stretch. Mm -hmm. um, and so you have to really care deeply about the medium and you have to want to produce the kind of work that will last for a while, you know, will maintain its importance. Um, it's, a, it's a mercurial thing, you know, none of us knows what that's going to be. I mean, we can, we can take our best guess and we have our own preferences, but um, work changes over time. I mean, look at the history of art. It's there for us to see. You know? Amen. Amen. Yeah, and, and what I've found is that, that one of the happy things to me has been the fact that over time, photographs that had meant very little to me have now come to mean much more. Uh, that in a way I've become more, more open um, and able to see things that eluded me before, especially in the history of photography. And um, I, I feel it's taken 20 years of writing about photography to feel that, that, that somehow that I don't heat, you know, that, that I'm taking the medium seriously enough. Yeah. 
You know, I think I think about this question a lot, but I'm also very aware of the fact that what makes an image really work for me has everything to do with the kind of emotional connection I have to that mm-hmm. image, which I can't assume everyone is going to share. But that's what you have to work on. Mm-hmm. And so I, what I've chosen to do is go into this with the idea that um, that I've got to run with that very personal reaction to pictures and to imagery. Um, you know, you make a picture um, and there are lots of reasons, some of them are even unconscious, um, that you are drawn to make the picture and that it works for you. I mean, it can be as subtle as an expression on the face. It can be, um, it can be a relationship between uh, two things in the picture that's moving to you because it says something to you about the world or about your own personal experience. Um, I think you just have to, for me, I've decided that I just have to trust that and trust that my own personal experience in the world is not entirely alienated and distinct, but that it's going to be shared by others. And if I can bring the, you know, if I can bring that level of meaning and intensity to the picture, I just have to hope that others will experience some measure of it. And that maybe if I've seen things well enough and clearly enough um, and have found a way to try and express some of that feeling um, in the image, that it will continue to speak for a while. And, and I think, you know, it's always the risk. That's the risk. That's the artistic risk. And I think in this case, I mean, certainly with the town of C, it's, it's, you know, it's one of those sets of pictures that people can come back to, you know, repeatedly. And every time they come back, they'll see things that are familiar, but they'll also see, also see things that maybe they'd overlooked before, mm-hmm. uh, maybe ha- that have become more meaningful in, in, in the interim. And to me, that's, that's pretty much all that really good photographs can do, that they can live with you. If, if they can live with you, um, they've done what they have to do. Hopefully. Um, it's also important to me that the work speaks on a number of different levels. You know, there, are many, there are many different points of engagement in the book for me. I mean, you know, the class is a very important aspect Absolutely. of the work. Um, and that leads to all other kinds of important aspects. And really we're talking about the effect that capitalism is having on all our lives and the people who are being, you know, trodden down by it. Um, the winners and the losers, the have, the have nots, the never will haves. Uh, this book is addressed to those issues, uh, but it's also addressed to larger issues. You know, I've tried to make a book that also incorporates my feeling about the environmental situation and even more broadly, and I, I hesitate to even say it because it's been the hardest thing to try and get into the work, but I wanted to make a book that, that reflected my own feelings about deep time and evolution. Part of the, you know, the, the impulse to want to photograph in the West with the, the mountains and the, you know, the visible, um, residue of five billion years of evolution and what that means and how it plays a part in the construction of our lives. And so these are, there are a lot of different things in the book that I tried to play with and some of them are more apparent than others, but it's in the work, you know, uh, you try and make work that somehow encompasses the way you see the world and the way you feel about it in the largest possible way. You, all, you never succeed, you never get it all down there, um, but you try. I like to think about two kinds of photography and maybe this is ap- apropos, but one is the one that we're most familiar with, which is a kind of photography of inspection where mm. we're kind of looking at the pictures just to see something we've never seen before. 
-hmm. And then the other is a photography of reflection, where we're looking at the pictures as a way of understanding. And uh, I think Town of Sea is very much about the latter, um, for exactly the reasons that Richard was pointing out. You know, getting back to this whole idea of the inside and outside um, in terms of photographic meaning, there's been this long argument about do you do you go out and photograph things you know? You know, Robert Adams said, what you're really doing is looking for a good example of something you already know. And John Jarkowski has said, you know, what what you really should be doing is looking to find out how you think and feel about what it is you're photographing. Um, they both work. They're both operative in my mind. So sometimes I'm doing one and sometimes I'm doing the other. And um, I, there are advantages to both of them. It, would, it wouldn't be interesting. It wouldn't be intellectually engaging if I wasn't discovering new things about how I feel and think about reality. Um, but there are times when I do run across something that I'm, I absolutely know and want to share and think is important to put down and uh, to bring into the mix of the work. And, and it's equally as, as uh, important. You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Andrew Blevins. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org save. 